New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. What if historical fiction could give someone the courage to save their life? We'll meet Judith F. Brenner, who has done just that in her debut historical fiction novel, The Moments Between Dreams. But first, hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody enjoying our time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. You can find me at historyauthor.com or across social media platforms. Those are Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Plus, you can read my columns in the New York Sun to get my analysis of current events, that's politics, history, and even medicine, through the lens of what I've learned from all these history books on the shelves behind me. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the 1940s and 50s for a story of the polio epidemic wrapped around a housewife's carefully concealed abusive marriage. Concealed so effectively, for a long time, she doesn't even realize it herself. We're airing this episode in October because it's both Domestic Violence Awareness Month and Polio Awareness Month. And if you thought polio was beaten, it has been making a comeback in places, so let's raise a little awareness of that and domestic abuse in today's episode. Judith F. Brenner is a journalist by training, and she owns Creative Lakes Media, LLC, a freelance writing and editing services company. Find our guest at judithfbrenner.com, where you can navigate through to all of her social media accounts. Those are also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Okay, now that we've arrived back in mid-century America, in the city of Chicago, let's join Judith Brenner and explore the moments between dreams. And here we are with Judith Brenner. She's joining us to discuss her debut novel, the Moments Between Dreams. Thank you so much for making the time to chat about this special book with the History Author Show, Judith. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. This did what good historical fiction does for me, but also what a good novel does for me. And that's, it gives you, it gives you feelings and it makes you think. And it encourages you to go back and look at the past. Maybe look at some of those old pictures of Chicago, such as mm -hmm. on, your, on your skyline here, which is a period skyline, by the way, no Sears Tower in it on the cover of The Moments Between Dreams. I closed my eyes and held out my hand is the first line of your book. And that line is typical of your wonderful, subtle writing. I closed my eyes and held out my hand. Think about that imagery, right? It's a moment that seems just so mundane in your life. It seems like, oh, that, that might be no big deal. But upon reflection, it starts to whisper about danger and also about denial. And it becomes much more meaningful to me as somebody who reads very closely. And I'm sure even if people don't think they're noticing things like that, their brains are noticing good writing. So how did that first line come yeah, to you as you're writing? <laughs> how, did you, how did that first line well, come to you? Well, I want... <laughs> It kind of waves through, but I wanted to really show at the beginning the character Carol uh, being vulnerable and also having that sense of trust that she's at the time still in a newlywed um, phase of her marriage. And, um, you know, to trust your mate and say, you know, hold out your hand, it just, it, it wanted, I wanted to show her vulnerability and her trust at that point. 
and allowing herself to give herself to this marriage and the unknowing of what's coming. And close your eyes is part of that too, right? Not only yeah. is it trust, but it's also speaking to the fact that her eyes aren't open yet. So we could probably have yeah, the whole conversation. Bit, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, she's a bit yeah. blinded by what's uh, happening and how much control is about to happen even further. But she's kind of closing her eyes to it going, okay, this is the life I've chosen. Let me uh, commit to it at that moment. Yeah. Every every line of the moments between dreams, you're, you're going to find yourself really struck by it. And I would, I would encourage everyone, of course, to go pick it up. But just that first line, and they say it is so important, right, for a novel, mm -hmm. grabs you right away, tells you the story that you're going to get. It, it does so many things well. It means different things to different readers, of course, as mm -hmm. all, all writing does. What did you, though, as the author, hope to deliver with this trip back to an unhappy home that looks happy behind a white picket fence in the 1940s and mm -hmm. 50s, but is anything but? So what did you hope to accomplish and evoke as you start writing The Moments Between Dreams? Yeah, I wanted to bring readers back to the 40s and 50s, particularly in the setting of Chicago, and bring them back in a way of nostalgia of, you know, those were the times of of pre and right the cusp of World War II. And in Chicago, the draft was coming up with World War II and people were on the edge of their seats watching the men on their blocks going away and getting shipped into boot camp. And so then the women are left to raise the children and um, get into the workforce. So I wanted to show that period with authenticity. Um, and I also wanted to show, um, you know, the struggle, the perseverance that people are going to have hard times and have had hard times. So when you have then all of a sudden a virus infect an entire community, you know, in 2020, we know what that is. But in the 40s, there are people, as we know, who, who lived through that and, you know, looked at COVID going, well, well I've been through that. Um, so bringing people back to the nostalgia of the 40s to recognize that we've survived before in a panic and a fear. Um, and then also to, with the unhappy home, you know, I preface when people ask me, what's my book about? Well, the woman married the wrong guy. <laughs> so how many love stories are out there like that? But, you know, today you can extract yourself if that was, was to happen in most cases. Um, but when you have the themes of the Catholic Church and the canon law of, you know, not uh, um, forgiving divorce and um, the pressures of society even to frown upon a woman who would leave a marriage um, and just the pressures to stay um, were there. So I wanted to bring that unhappy home there, but also show that Carol held on to her their joy and her faith and to portray that joy to her children to allow them to get through a very hardship childhood, you know, where you've got uneven um, balance of who's getting the attention in the family with, with a child that's sick. So I'm hoping that that, that came through, you know, just bringing people back to that. Most readers come back to me and say, oh my gosh, I totally remember getting the shot or congregating to get shots for the polio vaccine. And the older generation that I talked to remembers before the vaccine, you know, how scared people were and that movie theaters were closed, et cetera. Terror for 
parents, especially and the helplessness. And the, fortunately, we were spared that in this recent pandemic where children were basically entirely immune uh, based on statistics if you had a healthy child. But you do look back at previous pandemics, not, not only in the, in the polio epidemic, but you look back at the the 100 year ago, the Spanish flu pandemic, mm -hmm. and you had children, whole families just being wiped out. So I, mm -hmm. I like that you do that here in the moments between dreams. And I also admire you as a writer that you were willing to add in this aspect of polio, which is a whole other backdrop here for your novel. You said your novel is about, well, a woman marries the wrong guy, but that doesn't even begin to get to it because then that, that would be enough of a story to tell. Right. And then you decide, well, you know what, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to stick polio in there because that was in the time. And I'm, I, you could have just mm -hmm. thrown it away with a single line, but you, you, you care about your readers and you didn't even have readers yet. Right. Cause this is your debut novel mm -hmm. you had readers of other material, mm -hmm. but you cared enough to give them a really rich story and add something extra to it. And I've heard you point out stories like you just did that, polio and things like iron lungs that those those have not really been experienced by this generation or the people alive today anyway right. and those stories aren't necessarily told but your mother experienced polio she had it firsthand what makes you decide that well i'm going to write it but it's not my experience even though it's my mother's experience but i'm going to write it in such a way that as i've heard polio survivors do they say the moments between dreams gets this accurate, what it was like to have polio in the forties and fifties. Yeah, um, I did, um, well, have firsthand knowledge of seeing my mother deal with um, the aftermath of polio. And, you know, it's, I was different as a kid because my mother walked with a limp and, you know, people would stare, you know, and, you know, I wasn't being able to get picked up from, school if I had an issue, you know, no one was home or if someone was home, no one could come get me. So, you know, you had to get extra um, um, permission to go walk home if you're sick is like no one's driving here. So um, just talking with my mom of what life was like during the polio surgeries, I could tell that um, she wanted me to know um, how difficult it was to undergo every summer to have a surgery. I couldn't, I mean, I, I really couldn't imagine, but she made me imagine by, you know, just explaining how her child, cause you, you know, a lot of us might ask our parents, what was, what was it like when you were a kid, you know, when milk, milk was five cents <laughs> and there, you know, before TV and, you know, her life was sitting on a porch uh, reading and, you know, watching kids jump rope and roller skate near her. So, no one really wanted to come over and play. And uh, the book- They were is, afraid, right? Not to interrupt you, but that, that's an important point. They were afraid yeah, that they would catch Yeah, or it was you. just no fun. Or it was right, just no fun. Right, that too, but yeah. But to be treated yeah. like a, uh, we say a leper, right? And a disease and untouchable. I just thought that was important because yeah. it's beyond just you can't run and jump in place so they're bored with you, but they're afraid of you. And that that's very sad. And it's vivid in the book. Yeah, the, yeah, people, people I, I don't know that, I mean, the reading I did beyond my mother's storytelling to me, um, you know, I read, PBS did an amazing special historically about historical fiction and the polio epidemic and the uh, journey to a vaccine. So a lot of my research really brought home what, what it was like, that isolation, um, the shunning that happened. And then the scare of how do you treat this? You look at Sister Kenny treatments, which was kind of a wild 
way to treat someone who had paralysis and there was no um, um, options to cure it. And there still is no cure, but to have um, these hotbacks put onto a patient who's tiny, um, you know, it's, it's a painful therapy. So just understanding what that patient had to go through, I really wanted to portray that. And I, I waited to write this book because while I had it in my heart to write it when I was young in my journalism career, I felt like I wanted to be a mom first and understand what it would be like to raise a sick kid. Thank goodness I didn't have a sick kid, but just that motherly parenting worry, I wanted to understand in my rawness of life before I could put it on page. So I feel like writing is like an actor where you wanna like tap into something that you can connect with and then exaggerate it and put it on the page and but do the research to get it authentic. Well, I hope people will see from that explanation just how much work you put into it now the moments between dreams is really a labor of love i think you would describe it that way you put so much love into this book yeah i mean it was a, a wonderful journey to write i mean i i you kind of get in that zone and you bring yourself as a writer into the 1940s and um you ask yourself well what would this child do what would the parent do at that time um so it, it's really been a fun experience but also because it's um a dark topic in that sense it's disturbing to think of illness you also have to shake and give yourself as a writer a break <laughs> so that you mentally yeah. can cope so i you know but but at the same time it's i i hope that i've pulled back enough in the novel to show like other things going on around her beyond outside of the house you know that's happening even though they were isolated yeah, and I, I definitely wanted to get to that because that, that's something that handled by a writer that cared less or had less skill. And, and I also want to get to your editing skills because that's an important part mm -hmm. that could turn you off to it, make you want to put it down. But before we get further talking about the Moments Between Dreams, I like to ask an author to read a passage to give readers a oh. taste of what they'll be getting. And also it what you pick tells us what you find interesting and what you'd like to focus on. I already stole the first line from you. So I, I guess you, you can feel free to use that <laughs> if you want, but if you want to set this up for us yeah. a little bit and then go ahead and read us a little bit from your novel. Yeah. Well, I will start at the beginning because I think that's where every story should start. <laughs> um, and this, you know, and, and to preface, I did have several different beginnings as any writer might uh, change it up. Um, but I, I had a scene originally when uh, Carol meets Joe. And so there's a flashback. I, I, made, I moved it into a flashback so I could start right with, uh, with this passage I'll read. I closed my eyes and held out my hand. Eight years ago, when he asked me to do this, he slipped a promise ring on my finger the day after I told him I was pregnant. This time with my palm open, I felt a piece of flat metal press against my wedding ring. My eyes opened to see the sight of house keys. In seconds, my mind processed that these shiny keys meant we could relinquish the cramped cottage to another renter. Well, his dark eyes were wide and excited that he pulled off this surprise. His expression conveyed that he was expecting a shower of grateful kisses and hugs, but I felt stunned he had made the purchase without me. Where is it? What does it look like? 
Is it close to the school? I thought we were going to look, my voice trailed off, together. I promised your father I'd provide for us, and now I can since I've been working overtime. It's a solid structure, no more cracks in the window seals, three bedrooms, a garage, close to public transportation, a grocer, streetcars, and a bus line are all in walking distance, just like living at your parents' rental cottage. We won't need a car. I turned the key over and over and rubbed it with my thumb. It plunked to the floor when Joe pulled me toward his chest. I pulled back from his embrace to retrieve it, then looked at his beaming face, his grin wide. He extended his arms again in feverish glory. He lifted me at the waist and spun me around. I was dizzy with excitement, yet dumbfounded. The mixed emotions had my stomach in knots. He must have taken out a bank loan in his name. What is done is done, I heard my mother's voice in my head. I had acquiesced my independence to Joe at 19. I thought by this time we'd act more like my mother and father as a team. Pleasing my dad by giving him back his rental cottage key would be a highlight. And for that reason, I kissed Joe deeply and meant it. Whatever the house looked like, it would be better than having to drag a bathtub into the cottage center room and fill it with hot water from the stove. Can I see it now? We'll have to take the number 67 bus. It's not running as often on a Sunday. I had Roger give me a lift today to get the keys. Sorry, I should have asked him to hang around here and take us there. My parents' house was on the same property as the cottage. So I asked my mom to watch the children. I didn't reveal why, feeling I needed to see it first before telling her about the purchase. Joe was right. The house was more spacious and it was close to open air markets on Maxwell Street and public transportation, which ran in proximity to rail cars. But having the extra space came with a price, the offensive odors of industry. What made the house affordable was its location near the stockyards and factories. The realtor says the odors aren't too bad except on hot days. Joe handed me the key again and I opened the door to see a light carpeted front room and at the back was a large kitchen. See Carol, only smells like fresh paint once you shut the door. Lots of cabinets for you doll. Opening the windows would be necessary at some point. Still, it was triple the size of what we had been living and there was an unfinished basement with a ringer laundry tub and enough overhead light bulbs to set up Joe's watch studio on one side of the room and my sewing machine table on the other. The garage was set back by the alley. In it, we could store our bicycles and Joe's hunting gear. This time, I hugged him first. I can't wait to show my family. It's hard to believe we actually own it. I own it, babe. But you knew I wouldn't let you down. On the bus ride home, we realized how little time it would take us to pack since we had to leave the cottage furniture behind, for it was my father's. You've hit upon two things that I wanted to mention there. And mm -hmm. I talked about how subtle your writing is. And I think that your novel, The Moments Between Dreams, people may find themselves going back and rereading it. And I think a lot of the things will stick in their mind. And then maybe if they find themselves in, in a situation like this, hopefully not themselves, or maybe maybe noticing it in somebody else, they'll they'll think of some of these items. And one of the things that's subtle in that vein is the way finances play into 
this kind of abusive relationship where here not only does he buy a house and he doesn't he doesn't bother to consult with his wife which may seem like okay that that seems like wouldn't wouldn't you want to speak to her first but but it happens as as she says there but then the line where she says it's hard to believe we actually own it and he responds i own it and then he calls mm-hmm. her babe and it's which mm-hmm. is kind of you know infantilizing her which is another thing mm-hmm. you do he, he calls her doll too and then later you mentioned mm-hmm. he's throwing her around like a doll unfortunately when he's abusing her so these these mm-hmm. are all things in the writing that there's there's maybe two sides to it or maybe a double entendre and i i really praise what you do there with that introduction and Again, I think it's because partially your your skills as an editor, you know what to put in, what to put out, things like the smells is a fast pass, but it's in our head. So really well done there with the introduction. I, thank you. I hope you're proud of it. You should be. I am. I am. Very. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I hope that readers, you know, just by describing the space too, you've got, you know, ringer wash tubs. There's, you know, no electric appliances at the time. So just bringing people back to that era and that nostalgia of it and then but then playing playing with the words to show how the dynamic of the relationship is clearly un, um, not at level. Yeah, and being kept that like way. A team. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, never, well, you did this. People will see when they read the book. I won't go over every single line of it, but it is, it's really, really well written. People will like it if you've read a ton of other novels. And I, I want to point out to people too, this is not a book where I know sometimes uh, as a man myself, you might feel uncomfortable watching something and think, well, the male characters are very two-dimensional and you start to feel guilty. And I imagine it's like other people might feel if they watch themselves only portrayed negatively or and, and then they start to feel guilty just for being who they are. You have two male characters in your book, Carol's son and her eventual friend and as she starts to pull away from her husband more his name is sam and they don't fit into that two-dimensional mold that we might get in the hands of another author of somebody who maybe had gone through some horror of, of abuse or had been in a bad relationship and so they they just have no patience for for drawing any man as anything but completely a, a negative force in the lives of women so you had many you had many bad male role models to work with i'm sure not personally, fortunately for you, but we can all imagine bad characters. Authors often say that the evil characters are easier to write, right? Because they're they're just <laughs> evil, and you you give them a little bit of, of dimension, and you, you don't have to hold back and think of what they're going to do. But I wondered who you used as templates here for these two good men, these men that that are able to come into Carol's life, and they they help her in this journey that she's going on, which is very difficult to get out of that house that she has no say in buying and those chains wearing that ring that becomes a shackle. How, mm-hmm. how did you develop them and decide you'd, you'd give us some good men, something for somebody like me to root for in the book? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've had many male friends and I've been married to one of them for 30 years. <laughs> He's a perfect gentleman but you know, marriage is a, a difficult roller coaster. But still, you've got to have that core um, friendship and you know, caring um, for a lover, if you will. So, um, I used my husband as a template, certainly as a, a Sam, and then also my uh, uncle Nick as a um, person who was a Chicago police officer and just an upstanding citizen and always a jokester. Um, and to have that personality, I used him for Philip as uh, Polly's mate. 
And then Tommy, um, the son, I template my brother who uh, just as a imagining, you know, his, his being my playmate as a, we are two years apart, um, you know, running bicycles through alleys and that, and just being a little mischievous and wanting to father, follow, you know, footsteps of the father, which my father also was a great template because he was just the kindest soul um, on earth and always made my mother um, find ways to get around. So just a fixer and helping things smooth out and calming everyone. And, you know, you've got, you've got to have, in my opinion, a, a relationship that's healthy where someone is the calmer and can take all the, you know, either take the big picture, make it small or take the small picture and make it big so that the, the partner is, um, you know, complemented with that relationship. So I did have male influences in my life that were um, easy to, you know, mix and match, but I certainly wouldn't want to put everybody in the book. So I blended different personalities um, to come up with Sam. And he's my dream guy too. <laughs> your company, Creative Lakes Media, provides editing services and you're a managing editor and publisher of Sharpener's Report, which is a great name. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to pause for a minute. I talked to many authors, but a lot of them have editors who are helping them. You are a double threat in the novelist world and that you could <laughs> help you, you could you could look at yourself and say yeah i i know it works and doesn't work a, a little bit differently than than just a novelist might look at it so how did that help you deliver a polished version of the moments between dreams to your readers that hopefully are going to be curious about this after this interview and want to go pick it up yeah yeah well i i um believe in rewriting and rewriting and as an editor you can see where um, you can, maybe this is what you're getting through. And I'm so glad you picked up the whispers between the lines. I've, I've learned that something, you don't have to pound a reader over the head with what's happening on the page, the show versus tell. So I would always like reread a chapter afterward and say, well, am I telling or am I showing? And where can I um, take away something so, and trust the reader is going to understand what's happening or add a few details. So that self-editing truly is uh, um, happens, but it's more the rewriting process of knowing a first draft is a first draft and a second draft is a second draft and it's okay to have five drafts. <laughs> I really believe that. And so I push the authors that I work with um, from an, who hire me as an editor, you know, to go back and, you know, here's a developmental edit you should consider, you know, you don't want a data dump on a page. So I think pulling back and, recognizing when I myself had data dumped in a, you know, I learned so much about polio and so much about domestic abuse and households of that dynamic that, you know, I, my first drafts were very populated with, you know, tons more words and a lot more scenes that have hit the cutting room floor. And I think the difference for my um, perseverance in finishing a novel is that the cutting room floor is okay for me. Some people cry. <laughs> they literally cry like, you can't cut that passage. I wrote it three times. Yeah, but it's not going to help move the story forward or you're pounding the reader over the head and they know this already. So I, I, I have a thicker skin, I think, than most authors where um, when I get even my publisher sent, you know, I also had it professionally edited. I self-edited it, but when I gave my manuscript to a publisher um, and I, you know, had a, it sent out to numerous, um, it was also professionally edited by by someone so i trusted my editor too you know that oh you have carol standing here 
but the next scene she's sitting, so you have a transition. Like you can't, you can't have the character, you know, and things, a writer, you're so close to the work, sometimes you don't catch it. So you also, authors out there, trust your editors. <laughs> They're gonna catch things. Well, we can trust you as an editor and as a writer. You're enjoying my conversation with Judith Brenner. She's author of The Moments Between Dreams. Visit her at judithfbrenner.com for more and also to check out those editing services if you're thinking you might be in need of them. Creative Lakes Media is the name of the company and you can also find her on social media. She's at Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn as all good writers should be. Jill Hannah Anderson, who's the author of The To Hell and Back Club, writes of the book, the Moments Between Dreams is an emotional journey of courage and perseverance as a woman struggles to protect her children and herself. You write in The Moments Between Dreams something that may sound very familiar. You mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic earlier, and that's something that we lived through. And the idea of inviting children over and those children want to stay away. They don't want to play with their daughter, Ellie, who's stricken with polio. That's a very very heartbreaking. And I think we can relate to it more today than we probably could have maybe even when you were writing yeah. this book before the pandemic broke out. Yeah. That, yeah. that life for, for children back then and life for even somebody like your mother who had that limp and there's no Americans with Disabilities Act and there's, there's mm -hmm. not the same awareness, which is surprising because you think so many people had been, had been crippled as they called it from the civil war, the great war, World War yeah. II, you'd, you'd think that there would have been more understanding that they wouldn't have had to legislate things like make that little, that little groove there in the, in the sidewalk, right? That little ramp that we right. take for granted today. Yeah, the curbs but, and the ramps. Yeah. Something as simple as, as that curb was a barrier to people getting around and living their lives. So what was that life like? And what, what did you learn reading what that life would have been like above and beyond what your mother had told you about? Right. The bar I mean, the barriers to entry of, of any um, bathroom, any museum, even a grocery store, those things are hurdles for the, you know, vets and disabled people around the world. And particularly in America with such a progressive society, um, just to read about and really firsthand watch what happens. And anytime as a family, when you, um, my mother progressed to a wheelchair by the time I was a teenager because of post polio syndrome, which is a thing that connects um, uh, all your muscles um, and deteriorates them for the polio survivors because they overused the good muscle for decades, uh, then they became in, injured even further. So having planning vacations just to understand like where um, can we go that is wheelchair accessible? Um, there were Renaissance fairs in many states that you cannot go to because it's cobblestone or dirt paths, which are really hard on the axles of a wheelchair. <laughs> so you have to go to a state fair where it's paved or there's some ways to get around. So just being cognizant of the barriers and the shunning that goes on of, I don't, you know, you're different. I don't, you look strange. You, you know, I, I imagined what that was like for my mom and always embraced, um, you know, people I would see and, and look at them with absolutely no difference. You know, it, it's like skin color. You just, you see through a brace, you see through a limp, you see through an amputee's, um, what they're missing. They have gained 
you know, I can go on and on, but (laughs) the point is like, just to see people as they are, as their souls and their minds and their, their beautiful, what they have to give to exchange in another person and look through that. And, and there's definitely prejudice out there that continues today, sadly, regardless of ramps and curbs. I am so happy that you've made all this effort to write about something like a disability back then, because it is so easy to forget. And some novels, honestly, they're, they're just so sunny or they're just so dark mm. and, and then they don't bother. You could have told either one. You could have told a great 40s and 50s love story where everything is great. And you could have told a dark, horrible story of abuse, but you chose not to. You chose to tell a, a nuanced story that's really in the time, really, really takes us back to the era of the 40s and 50s. So I like that. And I also like that you cared. Part of the mission of this book, if you want to call it that, I'll call it that, is mm-hmm. that we all catch glimpses of something that's not right in a friend's, a family member's relationship. And we're trained the same way that you're talking about there to look away from the person in a wheelchair, look away from the, the person that's that's missing an arm or leg or is or has some disfigurement. Mm-hmm. We're we're trained by to that's polite, right? Is to not stare, to look away and ignore it. And in somebody who's having a, a hard time in a relationship, that maybe even they have their eyes closed and their hands mm-hmm. out. If we if we can see that, maybe we can help. But then you have to figure out just how you help. And that's something that I thought is a great tool that this novel is for, a great problem this mm-hmm. novel is a tool for addressing. Because you may know that person and you say, gosh, I never know how to bring up to her that that this is a problem, the relationship that she's in. Or maybe even if you're like me and you, you say, well, I, I know one of my guy friends, I don't like how how he talks to his wife. It really bo- it really bothers me. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if he realizes that he's doing it. And I don't know what's going on, but you, you hand him a copy of The Moments Between Dreams. Yeah. And no one ever is going to say, don't give me that book. I don't want it. That's, that's very yeah. rare. You say, this is a great yeah. book. I'll take it. And, and hopefully they'll read it. And so this book is a, is a way that you can ask, is everything okay at home without asking it? Maybe make people think. And are you, are you comfortable with people doing that? Or does that, does that make you proud of the novel that people may be able to use it to literally change somebody's relationship, make somebody look at themselves better or, or look at the person they're maybe about to marry before they end up here in Carol's situation? Absolutely. I mean, I, I would love that people would say, I've got a book I read you might like this and you know it's got a lot of good themes in it and and it's very inclusive that to me is an eye-opener for people um whether it's a sorority club and it's young people looking to be educated about um, red flags in a relationship and recognize an unhealthy relationship and then or uh, today someone who's been long time with a partner married or not you know if they're together and and you can tell the verbal abuse is going on just as visiting their household, you might want to bring it up. You know, there's other ways to communicate. And this is a great book that has an entertaining story. And I've been partnering actually, Dean, with domestic abuse and domestic violence um, shelters. And the advocates, the programming and uh, training have called my book edutaining, like a a cross between educational and entertaining. So I'm like, I'll go with edutaining. So you might, uh, if you find someone in your circle that you know, you want to hint that maybe they should read this book, you can say, I've got an edutaining book for you. You might like and see what happens. But I also encourage people to, um, you know, ask the question, are you okay? Do you feel safe at home? Um, Because I think in another situation of shame, 
that's an, a discussion that's not happening. But I would also encourage people to have a conversation with the vulnerable person in your life alone, away from the dynamics of the household where they may not feel free to talk. And that's why there are signs on the back of bathroom doors in congregations, because that's a safe place where someone could write down a shelter hotline where a partner who would be cautious of that wouldn't see them what they're writing down because no one wants to be accused of that. Regarding if you find someone in your circle of friends that might um, be benefit from the topics in this book, um, it's always just a casual conversation to say, I've got a book that's edutaining, it's educational and entertaining. So it's something you might read, I found it interesting. And you don't have to raise the specific question. Um, however, I do encourage people to ask a specific question if they do see a, a troubled, unhealthy relationship and bring the person you're concerned about aside away from the, the people around that person so that they feel safe talking to you one on one and not feeling like they're spied upon by a partner who might be feeling vulnerable. A lot of the, these abusive situations come from partners who feel vulnerable and want to have control right away. So taking that person aside and asking, are you safe at home? Is there anything I can do to help you? If you ever do feel unsafe, please know you can call me. Just having a safety net. People need safety nets out there. Um, and I hope my book raises a, ish, the uh, awareness of how often, um, sadly, those statistics are. I mean, it is one in four women and one in nine men are in situations where they're in an unhealthy relationship and feeling uh, unsafe at their at their home. Um, so, and then I, I also have done research about the military. There's a cruel to be kind boot camp that uh, takes place, and there's um, statistics out there that show how a person could bring that cruel to be kind uh, because I love you kind of song back into the household. And so there's a lot of mental health um, coaches out there that might um, be helpful. But just raising the the issues with the moments between dreams about you know being okay to ask the question are you safe at home and and also embracing people for all their abilities and not disabilities those two themes i hope uh raise that awareness book that does so many things i can't imagine a better one to recommend to everybody and the way that you address those themes without letting it bog down the story it still has those bright spots i guess or inspiring spots maybe is a better way to put it where she, carol is still on a on a, a journey it's not going to be an easy journey you know that but you you allow people to take that with her so that was clearly something you were conscious of as well you're a smiling happy person people watching via youtube can see that so you didn't want to make it a, a downer and something that was angrier settling scores was that something you struggled with or did that come naturally to to balance that so that people could enjoy and get that entertainment part of the novel and not just be bogged down by it's uncomfortable to, to read sometimes about an abusive relationship or a child with polio. Was, how conscious was that decision or was that so much of that instinct from being a good editor? Um, I think it's um, about being aware of that this is happening and a circle of network a wide network. Um, I do see um, unhealthy relationships out there. And I also know one-on-one, -on -one, my girlfriends are joy, joyful people. And so I've also um, talked with 
uh, domestic abuse survivors who were friends of mine through, you know, we all have a wide net, whether you have a dog or a child, you meet people that are acquaintances. And I've had several acquaintances that are, um, have escaped uh, an abusive relationship. And I see the joy in their hearts and a new beginning. So it's, it's a pleasure to know that there is a happy ending and a hopeful ending for many people who can extricate extricate themselves away from an unhealthy relationship. Your book does all of those things. It does them really well. I talked about subtlety and part of that is balance and knowing when not to go too far. I have one final question and that's when readers do pick up, hopefully the moments between dreams, not just to be entertained and they will be entertained, but also to attune themselves, <laughs> but to help attune themselves to the fact that not everybody is okay behind closed doors and white picket fences. For you, what is the, what is the thing you've loved to hear the most from one of your readers? And maybe people out there listening will say, wow, if that's, that's a reader testimonial. That's the kind of thing, that's the kind of book that I would like to pick up. What is your favorite so far? A bit of feedback you've gotten on the moments between dreams. I think the, the glorious feedback I've received is when people feel that I got it right, that it's accurate. I really wanted to write realistic fiction. And when it comes through, that people in Chicago relate, know the landmarks, know Maxwell Street, understand the tensions of the Chicago neighborhoods and how wonderful it is to have all the immigrant populations living together and how most cities, you know, urbanized the way they are where pockets of Polish Americans are together and Italians are together. And so I try to create that setting. And when I hear that I nailed it, I, I'm feeling very good about that. Um, so that, and then, I was really, some of my um, early um, publishing opportunities were like labeling this as a woman's fiction. And I fought against that because I had male editors, I've had uh, male reviewers and your Dean yourself. I mean, many men like the book. So I didn't want to label it as a woman's, it's not a woman's book. It's a, it's fiction, it's historical fiction. It's a story that I'm so thrilled to have a mixed gender following. Um, for for the book and, and that they do find it edutaining. Well, I certainly did. I'm glad you included me in there. And I, I guess I, the only only complaint I would have about you, this whole book or this whole interview would be, would be next time you mention the immigrant communities in Chicago, you have to put us Greeks in. But that that's you the only it. nitpick. <laughs> of course. That's the only all the nitpick best I could restaurants. <laughs> oh my gosh, all the best that's restaurants the only... in the Chicago area. <laughs> cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. Yes, that yeah. that's the that's the only thing that I could possibly complain about. It's such a wonderful book. <laughs> You're a wonderful author. This has been a wonderful conversation, and you can edit that, add whatever superlatives you'd want because you're, you're the writer and editor there, Judith Brenner. But <laughs> the the Moments Between Dreams for your debut novel, such a strong effort. It is going to stick with me. As everybody knows, I read a ton of books. I've been doing this show for seven years now. I think I have about 250 interviews and I have many of those novels. And I've read many novels just on my own. The Moments Between Dreams is a book that will definitely stick with me. It made me have a whole range of emotions. And I think anybody out there, whoever you are, pick up a copy for yourself. You'll be so happy you did. It's a special book. It will stick with you too. And I keep saying it, but it is true. You've written a novel that could save someone's life or change it for the better. It could make us better men as men, make women better, make everybody out there who's uh, ashamed to talk about 
no, their their wife, their husband may, treats them ways that they feel sick, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, and, and it can make us better people the way that we treat others. So thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the moments between dreams, Judith Brenner. I can't wait till your next novel comes out. Please do get to work on it right now. You got it, Dean. Thank you so much for having me today. You have a great show here. I always am a fan. Well, thank you. I'm a fan of yours. So I'm glad we connected. I hope everyone out there will tell a friend, become fans of both of us, certainly pick up your book. Absolutely. Again, the book is The Moments Between Dreams. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy and maybe a copy for somebody who's important to you that you think could benefit from reading it at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Judith Brenner for writing this book and for joining us today to talk about it. This was a really special novel that not only entertains, but informs, and it really could change someone's life or even save it. And if you're uncomfortable having that conversation about domestic violence, start with this novel. Hand it to somebody who you think might need to read it. And maybe it'll be a way that you could start that conversation once you're talking about the book afterwards. And it'll make that simple question of, is everything okay? And the question of, can I help? A little bit easier to broach. Visit judithfbrenner.com for more on today's guest and her editing services at Creative Lakes Media. And you can also find those social media accounts. If you enjoyed watching this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube channel for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. And visit historyauthor.com to find my social media accounts, as well as those over 250 interviews with authors. You're sure to find a conversation you'll love. And I've been doing this seven years now. Thank you to everybody who's been on this journey with me that long, and also to everybody who is new. Welcome. Please do tell a friend, spread the word, and come on back to talk about more great writing. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on IR Radio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Judith F. Brenner, Thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in 